there, listener. Welcome to this week's episode of the Better Than Fine podcast, where we're helping you make sense of wellness nonsense. I'm positive psychology practitioner, wellness coach, and personal trainer, Darlene Marshall. And according to the Mayo Clinic, it's normal to occasionally feel a bit of anxiety if like there's something coming up that you feel a little nervous about. If you've got a job interview or a test coming up or maybe, I don't know, you're going to propose to somebody, right? Like it's normal to be nervous about that stuff. But there are also people with anxiety disorders who have frequent intense anxiety that is excessive, it's overwhelming, and oftentimes it's excised, right? Like it's too big of a reaction to everyday things. So earlier this year, the World Health Organization advised global institutions. So these are things like governments, nonprofits, big employers, that it was time to really ramp up support for mental health. And that's because we're seeing major increases in depression and anxiety. And you listen to this show, or if you're new, welcome. But listening to this show, you probably already know that happiness and satisfaction with your life is good for us, right? Not just like, oh, yeah, I want to be happy, but that the people who do have high satisfaction with their life, they do feel good about themselves and in the world, that they have all these benefits. So increases in productivity, concentration, better mood, they have better relationships, they have better health outcomes. And those kinds of things then create a positive feedback loop. You're happier, So you're more successful and more stable. And because you're more successful and more stable, then you have the resources to go off and get the things that make you even more happy. The problem is when you don't have all of that or something comes along and disrupts it, then you're less able to deal with senses of instability, overwhelm, and those things lead to dis- Ease. Earlier this year, the American Psychological Association also updated some of their guidelines. So now they're recommending that anyone over the age of eight, but under the age of 65, be screened for anxiety. And in my humble opinion, there's two factors going on here. One, we're being more serious and open about mental health as a culture, which is really, really good. Like, good on all of us for recognizing that mental health shouldn't be stigmatized and is treatable. And let's get the resources to the people that need them because there are actually things that can be done. Yahtzee. But the second one, maybe not so Yahtzee, we have a lot more people who are dealing with anxiety. Forbes reported earlier this year that there has been a 25% increase in anxiety rates in America in the last year year. And I pay a lot of attention to this stuff. And while researching this episode, I had a woof moment because that was a big jump. So what's up with all of that? And what do we do about it? Well, on this episode, we're going to unpack some information about anxiety, bust a few myths, and then we're going to talk about what it is that you could be doing with your own anxiety techniques and things I think it would be helpful for you to be aware of when we're talking about anxiety. And along the way, we'll anchor to this being in the moment thing and what that is and what that's about and what it means. We've done two other episodes relating to anxiety already this year. 
There's a recent one about specifically about climate anxiety and how we cope with that and why it's actually kind of an understandable reaction and not necessarily a pathology, right? Because what one of the things we're seeing is that with all the intensity in the world, people are getting anxious in reaction to things that actually should make us anxious. So it's not really a mental health problem. It's more like, hey, what do we do because this is a reaction I'm having? How do I cope? But back in May, we did an episode about stress, specifically about stress happening in the nervous system. And if you listened, if you haven't listened to that episode, you don't have to have listened to it to get the most out of this episode, like this episode stand alone. But if you want to nerd out on how stress works and how that might contribute to anxiety, it's not a bad idea to go check it out. But like quick primer, I want you to think about stress in the nervous system as about resource allocation. We need resources at the ready to manage a potential threat. So if a bear busted through that door, I have to, at faster than the speed of thought, be ready to deal with that threat. And so there's all kinds of physiological processes that are going to like kick in faster than my brain even thinks, oh, hey, that's a bear. Like that's just going to happen. And that's part of being a human animal because it's part of being any kind of mammal. Mammals have autonomic nervous systems and they react to potential threats. But when we have feelings of like dread, fear, panic, all of that is in response, right? I say to a threat, but for some people, it's not like that, right? There is no bear busting through the door, but they still feel that way. And then it interferes with their day-to-day life or it's out of balance with what's actually going on. And then we need tools. We need strategies to help us. And it's very important to recognize it's not just in your head. It's happening in your body. We've got another episode on that too. Back in May of 2023, we did an episode busting the myth of mind-body dualism. There's no separation. You're just a single integrated organism moving through your life. So it's not just in your head. You're not just like having a thought. It's happening in your body. It's happening to your being. So what do we do about it? Well, in that stress episode, we talked about the autonomic nervous system, which is one branch of the nervous system. And I want you to think about that as all of the automatic functions that your body can do. And part of the autonomic nervous system is just like, kind of like beep like sonar on a submarine, like boop, just monitoring for threat, boop. That could be outside of your body or unfortunately, it could also be your thoughts. So your autonomic nervous system, like radar, boop, boop, might pick up on a thought that you don't have control over the next thought you're going to have. Might pick up on a thought and boop, reacts like it's a threat. So when that happens, when you feel that response to a stressor, when the bear busts through the door, the autonomic nervous system, the fight or flight branch, which we would call the sympathetic branch, kicks in, it's activated. You'll hear people say like, oh, I feel activated by that. That's, that's what we're talking about here. So acutely, you have things like, your heart rate goes up, your blood pressure increases, your pancreas dumps a bunch of insulin because your liver is also dumping a bunch of glucose so that you're ready to deal with the threat. The problem is that when you have, say, an anxiety disorder or you're under stress for a really long time, which tends to also increase your instances of anxiety, we start to stay that way 
And then we start to have things like you feel weak and tired at weird times, or maybe you start trembling or you sweat. Uh, you can't concentrate. You can't sleep. You start to develop gut issues. And that, you might be scratching your head at that one. Like if you listen to all those other ones, you're like, yep, yep. That's what anxiety feels like. But you can develop IBS from chronic anxiety. They're co-indicated. And that's because your autonomic nervous system controls your digestion. If you think about it like the resource allocation thing, right? Like I'm allocating resources. I'm going to slow down or stop the processes in the body that I don't need. So it can weaken your immune system and it can slow your digestion. And that slow digestion starts to affect the quality of your gut microbiome. And then you end up developing things like IBS from the chronic anxiety and stress. Psychologically, uncontrolled worry, urge to avoid whatever it is that's making you anxious, which might sound like, oh yeah, what's the big deal with that? The big deal with that is, what if it's something that's actually necessary or really important? Like, I feel like I can't go to work or school or I'm not going to date. I start to feel lonely. So all of those become factors. Now, this is not a clinical show. So if you hear all of this and you're recognizing yourself in it, I want to really stress, please speak to a qualified professional. Speak to a clinician if you are having these systems, these uh, symptoms. We are big fans of therapy on this show. And in no way is this show meant to uh, be a replacement for clinical or therapeutic practice. But we also recognize that those practitioners are not necessarily trained in embodiment practices and some of the things we're going to share later in the episode. So given that those tools are outside of that expertise, tools like positive psychology, fitness, lifestyle stuff, we want to give you that. And it can also be information to empower conversations with whatever practitioner you might be working with. You're listening to the Better Than Fine podcast. I'm your host, Arlene Marshall. We're talking about anxiety and we're getting along here to this idea of being in the moment and how those two things relate. And personally, there's really been two general things, general situations in my life where I have struggled with, you know, obviously there's been times in my life that I've been nervous, that I've been anxious. I can think of like the first time I did the show. I'm sure Eric is laughing at me right now. Eric is our producer. Uh, I was so anxious, but I knew exactly why. And it made totally sense to me. Like the first time I did this show on the NASM podcast network after two years of doing it on my own, I was sweating bullets. <laughs> uh, and if you listen to that show back, I talk really fast. because I was very nervous, but that all makes sense, right? But I'm talking about there's two situations in my life where I have had intense anxiety that I didn't really understand what was happening. And the first one was this, just this really general social anxiety when I was a younger adult. So like when I was a new adult, I smoked cigarettes because it was a way to get other people to talk to me. So I would be out in social situations. I'd feel uncomfortable. But if I went up to someone to bum a cigarette... It was an excuse to get them to talk to me and it gave me a reason to be around people. And the problem with that was I didn't recognize what I was doing because I grew up in a family of extroverts that loved to go and party and raise a ruckus. And I was like, okay, I'm supposed to be able to do that, but it doesn't always feel very good. And because it wasn't until much more recently in my life 
that I was around, that I have broken those habits, that I've worked through all of that, sometimes in therapy, and now being around members of my family that have that problem and that that's how they cope, I see in them the pattern that I learned and thankfully have unlearned. So that was one big one. And then the other one, I think it's going to be a surprise to people that actually know me because I haven't really talked with this with anybody about this. I just have recognized it as a thing that happens in myself uh, is anxiety in educational settings. So this past weekend, I was at the University of Pennsylvania. It was the alumni event for the Masters in Applied Positive Psychology. So we have this annual summit, a couple hundred positive psychology practitioners descend on this like very, very fancy school. There are famous psychologists that speak every year. It is a big deal. And I raised my hand to ask a question to a well-known scientist to describe the sensations. I'm trying really hard to focus on my question so that with everything else I'm feeling, I don't lose my question because I actually really want to know. But my hands are sweating, my ears are ringing, and my heart is pounding so hard that I happen to look down and right where my solar plexus is in the bottom of my sternum, I can actually see the bumping of my diaphragm because that was how hard my heart is just pounding. So all I wanted to do was add a question. They didn't call on me. So I went through all of that. I didn't even get to ask my question. But I'm certain that someone listening to this knows that sensation of that like acute anxiety. And for me, it's a fear. What if other people think my question is stupid? And then they lower their assessment of my intelligence. And now I've heard it said that anxiety is the fear of an uncertain future. Let me say it again. Anxiety is the fear of an uncertain future. And so I've got my hand up. Hey, famous scientist, I want to ask you about minimizing, uh, which is what my question was about. And I was afraid that my question was dumb. The uncertain future being that this room of people I admire and respect are not going to feel that way about me. I don't know if that's rational or not. Now, at the same conference that I was at, Roy Baumeister, who is one of the most cited scientists in the world, he's one of the most cited psychologists in history, he talked about the relationship between well-being and time. And when he looked specifically at anxiety, because he talked about all different things about well-being and time, but one of them was about when people are feeling anxious about something. How does that relate to time? And what he found in his research, if you think of it like a U shape, the far future is higher than the far past. So the highest anxiety is when we think about the future and the further out we project, the more anxious we get. If I'm having an anxious thought, it's probably somewhere out there. Slightly lower anxiety if I'm thinking about the past. Maybe it was a little more than slight, but like lower anxiety. If I'm, so if I'm anxious, having an anxious thought, it's probably not about the past. It's much more likely about the future. And the lowest likelihood is to be anxious about the moment you're actually in. And so it makes sense. Like you're worried about things that haven't happened yet. Anxiety is a fear of an uncertain future. But if we're talking about building well-being... It matters to know that you're least anxious if you're in the moment right now with what you're actually doing. 
But how do we do that? What does that actually look like? You were bring you back to the title of the episode, anxiety and being in the moment. That should give you a bit of a hint. We do things that anchor us in our current human experience and remember that it's not just mental, right? It's not just a psychological exercise. It is a physical experience. Maybe you have heard the word grounding of grounding exercises. Examples would be like tapping, mindfulness. Grounding is anchoring your mind in the moment that you're actually in. And some of the most effective tools are the ones that happen in your body. So maybe let's just dispel some myths here. Since I promised you at the beginning, we're going to like knock some myths off the table. Here we go. Maybe you've heard people talk about anxiety, like, well, you just need like some positive thinking, do some affirmations. Uh, Or my favorite that I think is incredibly ineffective, people just telling you to calm down. (laughs) Um, I mean, we all, we all know that one, right? You need to calm down. Um, well, none of those things really work. And that's partly because you cannot control your thoughts. You don't get to decide what your next thought's going to be. If you listen to the interview with Scott Barry Kaufman, he and I start talking about um, Sam Harris and whether or not we have free will. That's what we're talking about there, right? Free will is like, I get to decide what happens in my life. I get to decide how I behave. And Sam Harris's argument is you don't get to if you can't choose your next thought. I think that that's actually not true. But anyway. I digress. So because we can't control our thoughts, because we can't say what's going to be the next thought, you can't actually like loop yourself out of anxiety just through thinking. And this is where that whole argument about like, yeah, therapy is important and treatment is important, but we also need physical tools. And I like to think of it like, it's like you are trying to wrestle an angry two-year-old into a snowsuit when they don't want to go outside. Good luck with that. Uh, I don't, I don't think you're going to have a good time. So generally the most effective tools for anxiety are going to be the things that help us use the parts that we can control to manage the parts that we can't. And in the research and in practice, we find that that tends to fall into the categories of breathing, moving, and other forms of deliberate stress. And we're just kind of lump a whole bunch of things into that category. Don't worry about it right now. If you listened to the recent episode on breathing and sleep, you already know why. So we have already talked about the autonomic branch of the nervous system in this episode. There's also the somatic part of the nervous system. That's all the stuff that we get to control. Now, the cool thing is breathing is both somatic and autonomic. Breathing crosses the line between the two, which means we have research that proves breathing exercises done properly can actually help re-regulate your autonomic nervous system. So they can, you can breathe and it will switch you from fight or flight to rest and digest from um, sympathetic to parasympathetic. I think that is really cool. You're listening to the Better Than Fine podcast. I'm Darlene Marshall, and we're talking about anxiety and being in the moment. How does practices that anchor you in the moment that you're in help you to regulate anxiety? So let's break them down. So I said breathing, moving, and like other stuff. We're going to start with breathing. And there are two breathing techniques that I personally use and I like to teach my clients. One of them is for acute 
in the moment, I am having high anxiety and now is not the time. So very quietly, I did this one while I was raising my hand at the conference. I don't think anyone noticed. I mean, I'm going to get an email from somebody saying they noticed. Um, so anyway, like, I was wondering what you were doing. I listened to that episode and now I know. I look forward to your email, friend. Okay, so one for acute distress so that you can calm down and regulate yourself and like actually have a cohesive thought. And the other one is for how do we recondition the nervous system to be less and less susceptible to these bouts of anxiety? Acute distress. I learned this technique listening to the Huberman Labs podcast from Andrew Huberman. He is a Stanford professor of neurobiology and ophthalmology at the School of Medicine. I think I got that right. Anyway, so it goes like this. You're having an acute bout of anxiety. You are upregulating. You are arguing with your partner and all of a sudden you like can't even think straight. You're so upset. I'm going to demo it and then I'm going to describe it and it's going to sound super weird. Ready? It's two sharp inhales and a sigh and it goes like this. I feel calm just doing it. Anybody who has ever had a hysterical cry, that is your body's like natural impulse to re-regulate a hysterical nervous system. So we all know this feeling and this sound, right? You, you sobbing and you start going, <laughs> right? Like that's gasping and sighing to try to control the intensity of your feeling. And so we can just choose to use it before we get to the uncontrolled part. And I've used it with clients who are coping through intense unmedicated pain. I have used it myself when I'm having panic. Uh, it can be very effective. So the second one, that one's for acute. The second one is a practice that I've talked about on the show before, but I believe in it so strongly. I want you to hear about it all again. I've talked about it on the show before. It is uh, at the end of the breathing and sleep episode from it's back in 2020. I did an episode with Amanda Masters. It's been on the show a bunch. This technique, you lie face down with your hands stacked under your forehead and probably something underneath your ankles. So you're kind of like a kindergartner taking a nap, right? You're face down on the floor. And then you breathe in through your nose and out through your nose in a steady, slow four count. So inhale, two, three, four. Exhale, two, three, four. Repeat with no pauses. And gradually, as you get comfortable with it, you start to increase the duration of the four count, right? You start to drag it out so that you're taking fewer breaths per minute. Now, when Amanda taught me this technique back in 2020, still during lockdown, we were doing it virtually. I was doing it 20 minutes a day for eight weeks. And I saw for the only time in my life I've ever seen this, um, I, because of having Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, my heart rate variability is very low And it was the only thing I've ever had that actually improved my heart rate variability in a sustained way over time, which I interpreted to mean it was reconditioning my nervous system. Uh, When I was doing that training, I experienced fewer instances of anxiety and it was easier for me to regulate them. And now I do it as a conditioning uh, whenever I start to feel a bit of dysregulation. So I'll use it when I travel, I'll use it in the airport, I'll use it at the hotel. Um, I'll use it if I'm having trouble sleeping. So there's lots of applications, but one of them could be to help retrain your nervous system away from an anxious state. 
if you would like demo videos of these two techniques, I'll be posting them to Instagram later this week. Um, or if you're listening to this episode, you know, later, <laughs> many months after it's been posted, um, we're recording this, uh, it'll go up the beginning of November. So scroll on back uh, in, in my feeds. Cool. So that's the breathing piece. Let's talk about movement. And there's really two ways that movement practice specifically can help with anxiety. One of them isn't really about being in the moment. It's about your general well-being as a whole. And that's just getting regular movement. It doesn't matter if it's exercise, if it's playing physical games, hikes, walks, yoga, doesn't matter. Regular physical activity helps to like tone the nervous system. We want a nervous system that is reactive and adaptive to our environment and has an appropriate response to the stimulus around us. And we know that regular movement practices of all kinds help to tone that nervous system. So if you're someone who knows that you're prone to anxiety and the state of the world is enhancing that, leaning into a regular movement practice, exercise, playing soccer with your kid, doesn't really matter, will help to tone the nervous system and regulate your circadian cycle, which is going to help decrease your anxiety. It doesn't have to be complicated. The other way that movement can be helpful, just like the, the gasping and sighing is an in-the-moment practice when you're feeling anxious, uh, vigorous physical activity, so high-intensity vigorous physical activity can do the same thing. Uh, so I want you to think about it this way. Acute high anxiety, your heart rate is accelerated, your blood pressure is elevated, your palms are sweating, your thoughts are racing, right? It's many of the same things that you would feel if you went and sprinted as hard as you could, right? You're going to be short of breath, your heart's going to be pounding, like all of that stuff is, like I just described for myself, feeling like I wasn't smart enough, right? Like that's all the same stuff. So if you go and sprint, like I'm describing, you're mimicking that physiological upregulation fight or flight response. But your subconscious can go, yeah, that's because you're running champ. And then when you stop running, you go into parasympathetic, you go into rest or digest, it triggers the vigorous exercise, triggers the stimulation to then calm down. And all different people have a different idea of what vigorous exercise can be. My dad is about to turn 72. I tell him to go up and down the stairs twice. He's going to be huffing and puffing. That was vigorous. My grandmother, 88-year-old wheelchair user. I get her to get up and walk with her walker for like, heck, three minutes is a workout. Five minutes is going to be really intense. That would probably re-regulate her anxiety. The trick would probably be getting her to do it. Because if she's anxious, she's probably going to fight it. Whereas for me, it's probably going to be something harder, right? So it doesn't matter what it is. It matters that it matches to you. And if you've ever heard someone describe like, oh, I've had a really bad day. I'm going to go for a run. I got to blow off some steam. This is what they're doing. They're, they're matching the effort to like blow off the anxiety, matching the intensity of the nervous system. So they're parasympathetic. Think parachute for calming down helps them calm down. And it grounds you in this moment. It changes. Have you ever heard someone um, like a, a neuro-linguistic programming practitioner? We'll talk about like changing your state. 
Tony Robbins talks about changing your state. This is an example of grounding and changing your state because you're changing your neurophysiology. You're using your behavior to change your state of being in your own nervous system. Okay, so we talked about breathing, two techniques. We talked about movement, two techniques. The last on our list, our hit list of physical forms is other forms of deliberate stress. So you've probably heard like everybody on the internet, cold plunges have been a big old thing. And you've got like acupuncture, cupping, foam rolling. Like there's all kinds of examples we could come up with of like uncomfortable stuff that people are telling you to do. But here's the deal. They're stimulating activities that force you into an acute stress state. If you have never done a cold plunge, try one. It is acute and it is stressful. It is intense. But to get through it, you have to regulate yourself. You have to relax to endure. And there is a whole cascade of hormones, of biological processes that your body goes through as you try to regulate yourself through the discomfort of that stress. And all of us, almost all of us, instinctively will turn to breathing, right? So breathing is a big part of getting through all of these uncomfortable things I'm describing. Now, Dr. David Sinclair, who does longevity research at Harvard University, calls this stress mimetics. You're intentionally doing something that mimics stress. Many of them are often stressors that our ancestors would have had and that their bodies would have adapted to. So like exercise, cold plunge, right? These are stressors to the body, but they're things our our ancestors would have adapted to and that studies now show us make us healthier and happier if we can get through them, get ourselves to do them consistently. And so there's research tying these types of practices, acupuncture, foam rolling, cold plunges to lowered anxiety. Now, I do think there is an untapped slice of research here where if you're the kind of person that has the leisure time and the resources to like have access to a cold plunge tub or pay an acupuncturist or pay somebody to teach you how to foam roll, right? Like if you have those expendable resources, you probably also have like a stable home life and uh, nutritious food. Right. So there's a confounding variable there in terms of anxiety studies. But I know for myself, from my clients, getting them to consistently do those practices actually does help lower their stress and their acute anxiety. So try it because not everything works for everybody all the time. Right. And the only way you're going to know is if you try it for yourself. Uh, there are a few other things that you could be doing that could help outside of acute moments of anxiety. So I'm just gonna tick off a, a list here and I'll do my best to, to cycle them back here. So one of them would be having a consistent daily routine. It helps you be hormonally balanced. It helps reduce cognitive load. If you're getting up at the same time, you're eating consistent meals. We're gonna talk about that in a second. Um, you go to work at similar times, like that consistency of a routine helps to lower anxiety just because you're subconscious knows what to expect and you're less likely to just feel dysregulated or be dysregulated by your environment. So that's number one, consistent regular routine. And related to that is also eating at regular meal times and those meals including adequate protein and healthy fats. 
So if you're someone who, let's say you don't have a strong relationship to your hunger and satiety cues, maybe you uh, have what my cousin Amanda and I call neurospicy, a little neurodivergence going on. And so you forget that you're got to eat, or maybe you're just like the rest of us and like, you have too many things going on and you know, the meeting ran long and you lost your lunch window. You may not realize your body doesn't know the difference between the bear busting through the door. You're worried about that meeting with your boss later and the stress of being undernourished. So that is going to increase your baseline sense of like a threat or a problem. If your blood sugar is dysregulated, if you're not eating enough, and that can increase your likelihood of anxiety. So if you're someone who's looking for lifestyle practice that's going to help you, eating consistent meals that have adequate protein and fat is one thing that will help to regulate your nervous system. Um, so one was daily routine, two, eat consistently. Number three, practicing a pleasant form of mindfulness. And, and that does not have to be meditation. Anybody who has struggled with their mental health knows that everybody always tells you to meditate. And for some people, meditation actually makes it worse. Because if you're a person who's having some intense thoughts and someone tells you to just sit there and think about your thinking, like it's not going to help. Um, but there are other kinds of mindfulness. So mindful walking, mindful eating. Heck, you could be mindfully crocheting. Mindfulness is anchoring in the moment that you're in, in your human experience. So really anything that you enjoy moving excuse me, doing, <laughs> I talk about enjoying movement so much, it's creeping into my speech. Anything you enjoy doing, you could probably turn into a mindfulness exercise, which what you're actually doing there is training your brain to attend to the current moment you're actually in. It doesn't matter what, it, what the activity is. It matters that you're training your mind to invest itself in this moment, which now we have this research from Baumeister telling us uh, is actually effective uh, in helping with anxiety. So I want to share one final thought actually from Baumeister's research this weekend. Uh, anxiety, he said, he found in his research is associated with intrusive thoughts, right? You just can't stop thinking about the problem. You can't stop going like, what if, but what if, but what if, but what if we've all been there? Uh, Baumeister's theory is that those intrusive thoughts is actually the unconscious mind needs the conscious mind to make a plan. So if you've listened to the episode where we talked about WHOOP, it's a goal setting practice. We did that one way at the beginning of the year. We talked about implementation intentions in that episode. It's this idea that I'm not just going to like, what is, what is that cliche phrase? Like, uh, dream is like a, oh no, like a, a dream is a plan, like a goal without a plan. I think that's what it is. Anyway, I, I butchered that one. Um, implementation intentions is the plan, right? I'm not just daydreaming. I'm not, I, I'm not just like thinking, oh, it would be so nice if we went to Hawaii. Next. No, I'm going to like start researching trips to Hawaii, right? That's implementation intentions. When we have a specific plan, Baumeister and his grad student that he came up with this theory with, uh, what they found was that they had fewer intrusive thoughts. So the intrusive thought comes, you make a plan, fewer intrusive thoughts down the line. And my very clever friend, our very clever friend, Mika Opp, former guest on the show, shout out Mika, friend of the pod. So she asked, uh, if we make a plan to make a plan, 
is that enough? So like you wake up in the middle of the night, you're having these intense intrusive thoughts and you make a plan. Okay. Tomorrow morning, I'm going to sit down for half an hour. I'm going to like do the research or whatever. And Baumeister thought it was such a clever and insightful question. So way to go, Mika. Very impressive. Um, but also my guess is, well, probably depends on what the thing you're anxious about is how intense you feel about that thing and how much you believe you can actually affect change with your plan. But my suggestion to you when you are having intrusive thoughts is that even if you can't make a plan right now, you at least make a plan to do whatever the next step is, even if that is to sit down and map out a plan. And you find a way, whether you schedule it in your calendar, you write it at the top of the next day's journal page, like whatever it is, because I have found that for myself, that has been very effective. When I've got thoughts I can't seem to get out from underneath, if I make sure I capture them somewhere reliable and I've got time in my calendar that I'm going to go back to that list, then I can move on. And I hope that helps you too. Because it just illustrates for me Being in the moment can mean lots of things. And I think the more that meditation has become really common in our culture, the more that we're focused on being in the moment as being like, oh, you got to meditate. You got to like take three breaths or whatever. That's not necessarily going to work for everybody because not everything works for everybody all the time. When your mind is pulling you out of this moment, there are lots of tools that you can use in your body to get you back to where you actually are. And studies have also shown, and this one's been replicated many times, that we tend to be happier if we're focused on what we're currently doing, unless we're making plans, but even just making plans doesn't make us very happy. When we are living out those plans in the moment we are actually in is when we tend to be happiest. Uh, Lately, I've been getting a lot of great feedback on the show. Maybe it's because I was just at this conference. People were walking up to me and and talking about the show. So I just want to thank anybody who's reached out. Um, In a couple of weeks, we're going to have our annual Q&A episode. So if you've got questions for me, start sending them in. I'm going to be compiling those. We're going to have a special guest host. And of course, I would love to hear your feedback. So if you want to email me, it's info at darlene.coach. On Instagram, which is where you're going to find those demo videos of the breath training, that is also darlene.coach. I'm on LinkedIn, and the show has a Substack. It's better than find.substack.com. This week, we're setting out resources for how do you actually exercise for your mental health, which I know was a recent episode. If you're a fan of the show, I hope you've already subscribed. Maybe, maybe if you really like us, you've left us a review and share about the show. Tag me when you share. If you're on Facebook or on, excuse me, YouTube, be sure to hit that like button. Thank you so much. Take good care of yourself and be well.